So if the franchise tax board is shaking down a dude that lives in Arizona over a fairly small amount of money that he would owe taxes on, meaning the taxes owed is going to be well less than $40,000, we might be talking under $10,000 of tax liability that they are shaking somebody down for out of state. You bet your ass they're going to start auditing businesses either by industry or by how many 1099s they file. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mika Koshovsky, and welcome to episode 41 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Emily Baker, a badass lawyer for online businesses. Emily is a 15-year veteran of the legal field, a former deputy district attorney, and has run multi-seven-figure businesses with her husband, and in that time has seen it all. And with that experience, she now helps her clients create common-sense legal protection, which is something we all need as business owners. I wanted to have Emily on the show today because as a California-based lawyer for online businesses, she has become intimately familiar with a new law the state of California passed called AB5. This law has been causing a lot of issues in California because it affects the way that businesses work with contractors and freelancers, forcing businesses to adopt those professionals as full employees of the company. Now, just because you maybe don't live in California or don't do work with somebody in California, that doesn't mean that this doesn't affect you because several other states are crafting bills just like this one. So chances are that sooner or later you will bump into this. Emily and I covered a lot of ground on this extremely important topic. We talked about what AB5 actually is and why it was passed, why freelance writers are getting hit especially hard by this law, something I did not, I was not even aware of, how AB5 applies to people working through Upwork and other uh, similar platforms, and what you can do to protect your business. Legal matters may not be the sexiest thing to talk about, but they are incredibly, incredibly important. So this is definitely an episode an episode you don't want to miss. I jotted down tons of notes and have been taking action to get my own business even more legit after we recorded this episode. Emily mentioned several free resources in the episode to help you get your business legit as well, and you can find the links to those in the show notes over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 41. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 41. Don't forget to head over to your favorite podcasting app and leave this show a review if you haven't already. If you're enjoying this podcast, it is the best way to support it at the moment. All right, you guys, I know this has been probably the longest introduction in the history of this podcast, but I am very serious that this is a really, really important topic, and I want all of you guys to secure your businesses and to protect yourselves so that you can be successful in the future. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode with Emily Baker. All right, well, Emily, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's going really well. I'm super excited for you to be on here because um, what we're going to talk about is the new AB5 law in California, which is affecting a lot of freelancers who are working out of California 
or businesses who are employing people from California. So I'm pumped to have you here. You're an LA-based lawyer, so you know all about this. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show and talking about this uh, issue that has a lot of people kind of confused and scratching their heads. I'm happy to be here. It does have a lot of people confused. And the thing that I always hate when things like this happen, it's like when GDPR happened, all of a sudden, like every person who's ever blogged has a legal opinion. And I'm like, look, man, (laughs) I had over $130,000 in debt from going to law school. Please do not just speculate based on something you Googled and make that your advice to people. Um, AB5 can be confusing. It can be worked with. Um, I think understanding the the goal behind it helps people understand how to work with it. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are very frustrated. A lot of industries are very frustrated and it feels unfair to people. But the law is not always about fairness. <laughs> Sometimes this just is the way it is. It's We've got what we've got and we've got to work with it. And it's going to continue to evolve this year and I believe next year because there are so many industries that are taking this to court and trying to carve out exceptions. So this is, though it is the way it is right now as we're recording this, um, this law will continue to evolve in California. And there are number uh, number, there are numerous other states waiting to see how this shakes out in California because they have similar legislation pending. Uh, Namely, New York, Oregon, and Washington uh, state are all considering very similar laws. The the test we're going to be talking about that's the underpinning of AB5 is already in effect in uh, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And people in those states don't realize that this already applies to them largely. And the federal government in the U.S. is considering changing the current independent contractor test to this. So even if your listeners are like, I'm not in California, I don't work with people in California, I'll just avoid California. It's weird. They do weird stuff there. I'm just, I'm over it. First, I feel you because I get, I'm there too. (laughs) But second, this is coming. It's like winter. It is coming. It is coming for a lot of states. And I believe that in the next several years, we will see the federal government consider this Uh, more and more because they are considering this to be very pro-employee for every freelancer out there in the world who loves working as a contractor. They're like, no, let me work the way I want to work and leave me alone. So I, I get it, but it's important for everyone to keep kind of an eye on this so it doesn't catch you off guard when it either comes to your state or becomes the rule nationally. Yeah. So before we dive into, because I think there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to learn uh, on both sides there as to like what to do with the AB5 law, like what is it, all that kind of stuff. I want to first understand a little bit about that 130 grand in debt, right? Because I feel (laughs) you. I got student loans myself. Uh, Mine are nowhere near that number. Uh, Tell me like what made you want to become a lawyer in the first place? And why did you decide to start working with online businesses like like you are now? Absolutely. So the road to law school for me was kind of long and winding. Um, I did not have great grades going through school. I was an athlete. I played water polo uh, growing up. I played men's water polo. I was a swimmer. No way. That's crazy. I swam too, but I wasn't as good at it. I did better when I could swim and punch people at the same time. So I played water polo through high school um, in the 90s 
I am just an old ass nineties bitch. And I love that, but (laughs) there weren't women's teams in most high schools. So I played on the men's team and then just got recruited uh, to college to play water polo. So playing water polo was my goal school. Not so much grades. Terrible. Um, I injured myself in college, tore out my shoulder um, and stopped playing water polo. And I was like, crap, I have no backup plan. Like there's no backup plan. My, my plan was to just play water polo, go to college, hang out with boys and, and figure it out later. Um, I was a political science major. I always loved um, kind of politics and debate and that sort of thing. So when I started considering doing something else, Law school was something I wanted to do. I did not feel smart enough to do it. Um, I'm dyslexic, ADD. My grades were bad. So I felt like I couldn't do that. But once I decided that was the way I was going to go, I made it happen. Put in the work, put in the hours, um, learned myself, learned how to study, and worked my ass off and got into law school. Um, From law school, I became a deputy district attorney. And when I was going through this process, a lot of women I had met had had run-ins with law enforcement in negative ways due to either um, sexual assault, due to harassment, these sorts of things. And when you're in circles with women and you get to talking, eventually people share their stories. And those stories really hurt my heart. And my driving force into law school was I can do better. Like I can do better for people. Um I I don't know if you're into the Enneagram. If any of your listeners are into the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram one. I am like truth, justice, defend the voiceless. I've got your back. So becoming a uh, deputy district attorney felt like a natural fit. To do that, you have to go to law school. So that was my driving force. Got out of law school, got the big career, um, loved it, prosecuted everything from tax issues to pimps and hoes and murderers and gang members (laughs) and drug dealers and like some massive I had some massive drug bust cases with like the ATF and you get to roll with cops when you go to lunch and it just feels awesome I loved it uh it didn't work well for me as I became a mom um I had some health issues during that career and realized that I needed to take a step back and there were other ways to help people So as I was transitioning away from being a district attorney, I started diving into kind of entrepreneurial circles. I've always been one who will just make it work for myself. And I'm like, I'll make it work. I have a law degree. I know some shit. I'll just make it work. And as I was going into more entrepreneurial spaces, A, there weren't lawyers in those spaces. And when people found out I was a lawyer, they always looked at me and went, can I just ask you one question? And that's when I started to realize that the information out there for business owners was hard to find, that a lot of online business owners found lawyers to be uh, jackasses, which, you know, can be true across the profession. They found it hard to find somebody to just consult with. Like, how can I just ask a question? Can I just ask somebody a question? Um, Which is why I do things like 20 minute consultation calls. Sometimes you just need somebody to hear you and answer your question so you can get on with your business. Um, My husband also is self-employed and runs his own business. And I realized how much I did when we were starting that business that people don't know you need to do. Um, 
so that is how I started working in the online space. I knew I wanted to be at home. I knew I wanted flexibility. I knew I wanted clients to have flexibility. And I find that online business owners, and even if freelancers don't see them, themselves that way, they are running their own business. They are running their own show. Absolutely. All of them have a bigger purpose. And whether it's personal freedom, freedom for their family, um, location independence, that they want to raise money to build schools somewhere in the world, all of them have bigger purpose and drive. And I love working with that kind of business because when I support their businesses and their big dreams and protect them, they can do the good that they're meant to do in the world. And that, I love that. It it makes me feel like I am still helping the world be a better place through the businesses I help that I protect and that I promote. And even if that's just making life a little bit better for someone in their family or letting somebody be location independent so they can live the life they dream of, that is a happier person in the world and that person affects others. So it let me still have purpose and be at home and mess around on the internet. I mean, when I first started entrepreneurial stuff, I did mostly tech like YouTube commentary because <laughs> I love technology. I love the internet. I did high tech crimes for a while. And um, it just gives me a great venue to share. And I get to be on social media and share the stuff I know. I also um, get to run my podcast and literally do legal commentary crap talking about stuff all the time. It's the greatest job ever. I love what I do so much. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I think it's funny that you... This is going to sound really strange, I think, to people. But I think it's funny that you kind of like drew this connection between like drug dealers and this kind of stuff to like online entrepreneurs because <laughs> I, I think there's something there. I think there's this like hustle with these people who are doing these like online, you know, businesses, you know, whatever it is. There is like, there's, I, I don't know if I can exactly put it in no, the right words. That aren't gonna, there's a hustle to right? dealing like, drugs. There's a hustle to dealing drugs. And even my, I prosecuted a lot of fraud cases um, because I really loved and was fascinated with my fraud defendants. They are bright. They are innovative. They are just doing things well outside the bounds of the law. And a lot of times they're like, well, the law shouldn't be that way. I should be allowed to money right. launder. <laughs> I don't know. If people are stupid enough to give me their money. Why is this illegal? But I really just, there's an intellectual fascination with that hustle. Um, and I really was always a DA that was like, look, man, we're on different sides of stuff. I don't necessarily think you're the worst person in the world. Some of them I did. But when it came to drug dealers <laughs> and fraudsters and stuff, I'm like, I don't think you're the worst person in the world. Let's just, you broke the law. It's my job to not let you do that. And we'll just figure it out. But um, the the blood and guts murder and police protection on my house when I had little kids in bed, that I didn't have a lot of tolerance for. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. So. I think um, something that I've said before and multiple times that like has really concerned my friends is how much I um, get a kick out of or like appreciate really intelligent like crimes or like specifically like art theft, like those Ocean's Eleven movies. Yes. Oh my God, those are like my favorite thing. And I'm almost like there's, and I've always said like when my first time that I went to Bangkok, I, when I walked down the street, I told my, my, my fiance, I was like, there's something here why I picture somebody up in those like skyscrapers who is like doing something kind of like semi sketchy, maybe with Bitcoin. And like, for some reason that's like getting me like really pumped. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I totally see that sort of connection <laughs> between just these like, you know, high crimes, you know, like art theft kind of things. And then like 
the online hustle, the entrepreneurial hustle. Um, but I want to, you know, go back to the AB5 law. Absolutely. And it, exactly what that is, because it kind of like, I think, hit, like you're saying, you know, this is something that's been in the works, but I think it hit a lot of people and they weren't really expecting it. So I really want to talk a little bit about what exactly is the AB5 law? Where did it come from? What was the idea behind it? And like, what is what is it trying to solve? Absolutely. We'll get to AB5. But I have to ask you a question. Have you read or listened to on Audible the book Ghost in the Wires? No, I have not. No. Okay. Write it down. Listen to it. It's about one of the very first hackers investigated by the FBI. And um, it's his story about hacking, like back in the day when you were hacking uh, dial-up phones and what have you at the beginning of the internet. And it's a fascinating kind of cat and mouse with him and the FBI as he's like hacking into the Pentagon just to see if he can. And they are trying to catch him, but he's hacked into the FBI. So he knows how they're surveilling him. (laughs) It's just fascinating. But I also loved those kind of crimes and they were very fun. Um, to investigate and to prosecute. And I'm like, look, man, I rather have somebody trying to come after my personal data because I grew up in the nineties. There aren't like, you know, digital photos of me as a kid, like naked, like every single Mm -hmm. 16 year old on TikTok right now. So (laughs) I wasn't really worried about it. I would rather deal with that kind of fallout and people trying to get my social security number than I would with people trying to kill my kids on the way to school. So not to be dramatic, but you know, Mm -hmm. I would rather deal with fraudsters and intelligent criminals than than thugs any day. But AB5, it feels like it came out <laughs> of the blue <laughs> because it was passed very, very quickly in California. So what ha- the back, the very short backstory, and I talk a lot, I try to be brief. The backstory on this is there was a Supreme Court decision in the Dynamax case that the California Supreme Court basically said, hey, um, we don't like the way that we're applying the independent contractor law. We think that it's not the right one. We're going to use the new one. So there are two different ways to decide if somebody's an independent contractor. In law, they call them tests, and there are a bunch of factors, and you run the situation through all the factors and figure it out if someone's a contractor or not. The IRS test, which a lot of states use, has 20 plus factors, and then the California new test is called the ABC test that's right now the law in New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, California, and then other states are looking at changing to this test. So what AB5 did was take the decision from the Supreme Court, put a bunch of rules on it, implemented this new AB three-part test instead of this 20-part test, and then passed it in like a matter of weeks. So AB5 is very frustrating because there are tons of exceptions. Um, If you want, I will tell you what the three parts of the, the three parts of the test are, and then we'll get into what some of the exceptions are and why there's so much confusion and frustration, if that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the ABC test has an A prong, a B prong, and a C prong, right? The A prong is that a person is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work, both in the contract and in fact. So it's not enough that your contract says you're an independent contractor. And a lot of businesses will try to do this where it's like, we say you're an independent contractor, but really you're just part of our marketing team that's not being paid as an employee. That's They will look at both how you're working actually and what the contract says. The A prong for true independent contractors and freelancers is generally not a problem. The B prong is problematic. The person 
performs work that's outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So what the hiring entity's business is, and then what your work is and whether it's outside of their business becomes the biggest Mm. test. So like all the Pilates instructors that work at a Pilates studio are now employees and they're like, but we don't want to be. It's like, the law is like, we don't care. If you do CrossFit at a CrossFit box and you're instructing, you're an employee. That is part of Because that's such a key like service of that business. Exactly. That is the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And we'll get into some of the arguments around that. And then the C prong is that the person is customarily engaged in an independently established trade occupation or business of the same nature as the work involved. So if you have somebody who's normally a photographer, but they are doing data entry, (laughs) it becomes more of a problem because it's like, oh, they're doing different types of work for this hiring entity. So if you're generally a marketer, but you're also doing a lot of heavy copyright work or a lot of project management, that is where the C prong becomes muddy. But if you're generally doing the kind of work that you do for all of your clients, the C prong is usually not a problem. It's the So C-prong. if you do if you do multiple things for a company essentially, that's when like they can like look at you and say no, you need to be an employee. Yeah. Kind of. If you normally do in your with your other clients, if that's what you if that's a service you provide, that's fine. What they're saying is the service that you provide as an individual or business needs to be kind of the same with all the people you provide it for. That one company can't start using you in a whole bunch of different creative ways because then you're more likely an employee and less likely a contractor. Gotcha. Contractors, if you hire me to write a contract and then they're like, oh, by the way, can you also do Pinterest images for that? That's what you would ask an employee to do. It's like, can you do this project and these other parts? Contractor, it's like, no, you're contracting me to do this. That's what I'm doing. But the B prong, the usual course of the hiring entity's business is where a lot of um, particularly people who run Um, as virtual assistants, as freelancers are running into issues. And it's where if you run in marketing, you can run into an issue for marketers who provide services to their clients, but then have their own independent contractors, maybe doing graphics or what have you. Those people are now employees of the marketer, even though the marketer is not an employee of the end client. So Mm -hmm. that is where the B prong comes in. And that's where Uber had originally argued that they were a software um, platform. They're like, we're a software platform. We don't, we're not a ride sharing um, business. So it doesn't matter that drivers provide rides. We, we as Uber just provide software. Um, so it sounds like when I read articles about this, to me, it sounded, or at least the way the articles made it sound was that this law was really passed to deal with the Ubers and the lifts, but by accident, it's essentially nudging and like really kind of disrupting a lot of this like freelancer space. But what you're describing actually sounds a lot more like it was totally aimed at both. Is that correct or am I missing something? So the media dubbed it the Uber law because the individual in the state assembly who was really pushing this law did talk about Uber quite a lot. And there was a lawsuit after the Dynamax decision from the Supreme Court. There was a lawsuit by a number of Uber Uber drivers that said they were misclassified. So Uber drivers were saying we should be employees because now there's this new rule and this is what it says. And that's where the uber kind of took off it's also it's very easy to put headlines in saying uber and lyft being targeted by this new law 
Um, I believe that those are the type of employment relationships that were being targeted. But I've asked every Uber driver, and I travel a, quite a bit for for speaking engagements and consultations, uh, and for fun. But every Uber driver I talked to was pissed. I did not come across an Uber driver that said, I want to be an employee. Most of them said, I'm an employee somewhere else. And I can't also be an employee of Uber, but I can be a contractor. I like being able to just pick up my phone if I have time and do rides or not. I like not having regulations or restrictions. I like that I can work two hours or or 20 if I want to. Um, So once you bring in somebody into employment, for freelancers, the considerations become who owns your intellectual property, because it's generally the employer, um, where if you're an independent contractor, it defaults that it's your own. So that's one of the big things for freelance designers, writers, uh, and creatives. But it's it's also smacking at the music industry, where it used to be really easy to grab a guitarist if you need an extra person for a gig. That person's now an employee of somebody either the band, the venue. So the music industry is struggling with it. Um, the film industry is struggling with it. The creatives, YouTubers, if you're a YouTuber like Shane Dawson, who I love, um, and you have a second shooter and somebody helping you edit, you know, you're Andrew Sawicki. That person, Andrew's now should be an employee of Shane. Even if Andrew has his own LLC, Shane has his own LLC you can't argue that Shane's business is not video content production and that a second shooter and an editor are part of that business. So yeah, that's broad implications. This is really, really strange to me because where I pictured this whole movement going, and that's not to say I'm always right. But there's a lot of people whose opinions I respect who seem to be thinking the same things as I was. So I kind of valued my opinion a little bit higher. Yeah. We're essentially saying that more and more industries were going to go into this gig economy style, you know, like way of doing business, like an Uber, like a Lyft and like Upwork, the way that, you know, you can go on Upwork and get anybody to do anything. And a lot more people are going to be able to do that within their industry. And this decision, this legal change is almost saying like, nope, that's not where things are going to go. Do you feel that that's true? Or do you like, how do you feel about that? Do you think that this is a hard turn left? And like, we're not going to be heading in that direction? Or do you think, like, I'm just curious what your opinion on that is? I think industry very much wants to go the gig direction. I also think when you start talking about um, people under the age of 30, they want to work in this way. I want to work where I want, when I want, how I want, with who I want. I don't want to be stuck 15 years with a boss that I hate, with a commute that I hate, and never seeing my family. Um, And I think that that will bring... In my experience, I'm a lot happier working for myself than I was working a very secure government job with 401k, um, 457, great health insurance, benefits, all of it. I'm still happier doing what I'm doing. And my capacity to make more money um, is just limited by my own time, creativity, and what I'm willing to charge. So I love the gig style work. I think that the people in government are nervous. I think they don't understand it and they feel like people are taking being taken advantage of. And while that can happen, 
I believe that the internet has put most people in a position where they can negotiate for themselves and stand up for themselves in a way that is different uh, than it was 15 years ago. I also think that this law really hurts uh, people who are younger, who aren't going to necessarily be ready to enter the traditional workforce um, and want to work in a gig way, people who are disabled in any way. And that could be from physically disabled, where it's hard to commute, to um, debilitating migraines. Being a gig worker where you don't have to leave your house puts you on an even playing field because nobody might know that you have physical limitations. Um, For women, which a lot of my clients are women, um, they're moms who don't want to put their kids in daycare every single day of the week and are like, if I can have my kid in daycare two days a week and be home three days a week, I can still work and support my family in the way I need to. And that's cutting into all of those different things. And it wasn't considered because the people who are in the California legislature don't understand the way this industry works. They don't understand Um, And probably haven't ever talked to people who've carved out different and unique careers for themselves. And I believe that the intention, without railing about politics, I believe that the intention is to protect workers from getting screwed. I believe that the California legislature does not give enough credit to gig workers to protect themselves. Yeah, I think... There's going to be without getting into like the government sort of things, but it is interesting because this is starting to affect like us, right? Yes. And one of the ways in which I moments, I should say, in which I realized that the people who are currently in power in government have just the least amount of understanding of what is going on was when I was watching the um the Mark Zuckerberg, yes. uh, Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. like whatever the that Facebook was. Hearing. And yeah. And no matter what you think about Facebook, like, yes, Facebook steals tons of stuff and is a constantly watching all this. Yeah, sure. That's over there. But the, the questions the that he was receiving, I was just standing there and I was like, what is this? Like, how do you not like, and the same thing with the Google guys, like, you know, they were talking and I'm just like, you clearly have no idea like yes. what you're even talking about. So yes. that's really scary when people are making laws about things that they don't fully yes. understand. Yes, it is. So what are, we've kind of talked about the cons of this, right? Like the cons of this law. Are there any pros? What are they? <sighs> I hate AB5. I really do. And <laughs> I, I, you know, my, my personal opinions aside, no, not my personal opinions aside. I hate AB5. I trust, <laughs> I trust enterprising people to create great work for themselves. And I hate restricting them from doing it. The benefits are these permalance positions where large companies refuse to just hire people that they are treating as employees. That is a problem. That is improper. However, I believe that under the old test, those positions still failed, but employees who were kind of permalancers were afraid to sue and say, I've been misclassified. So this does even that playing field, but the fallout is so substantial. And the way that AB5 particularly carves out very funny exceptions, makes it hard. Um, Freelance writers, for instance, I think got the kind of short end on this one because freelance writers are given an exception, but only kind of. So it's up to 35 submissions to any 
um, place. So if you're a freelance writer that regularly writes for a large newspaper, now you're limited to maybe one or two a month submissions. That's not even things that'll be printed. But a lot of the freelance writers I've spoken to are like, well, we submit all kinds of stuff. Some gets printed, some doesn't. This isn't published pieces. This is submitted pieces. Um, And a lot of creative writers don't want to be employees because then who they're employed by owns all of their writing, where when they're individual contractors, they can negotiate who owns the writing. So if you submitted a whole bunch of short stories to a newspaper and you still own the rights, you can still publish that later as a book, um, where if you are employed by them, you cannot. So there are larger implications of intellectual property for freelancers that the state never considered. I don't think they ever asked anyone who freelances um, at all. And I know that they don't understand because the language that they use when talking about freelancers being taken advantage of doesn't ever account for all of the benefits of building a online business where you are in control of your time and your projects and your life. Hmm. Yeah, I I had no idea about this freelance writing thing because I have friends who are like travel writers who submit work all the time to magazines and big and big websites. And I mean, they do submit stuff all the like I mean like all the time. tons tons of submissions per month. So is this like yeah, so is this thirty-five submissions per month per year? Like what is the per year. Per year. Per year. So this is not just writers. So because we're we're getting into this exception, the 35 submissions per year is photographers, photojournalists, freelance writers, editors, and newspaper cartoonists. So they are limited to 35 times per year for the hiring firm. So per publication. So if you're submitting to different publications, you have a 35 limit per each publication. But this is why we saw Vox Media just lay off all their California contractors. They're like, screw it. Wow. Bye. They laid off like wow. 400 freelancers or said, we're no longer going to work with you. They can't really lay them off. They're not employees. But that is where a lot of content creation industries are like, oh, So for somebody like me, I write all my own content. But if I wanted to hire a copywriter or a writer to help me with blog content after my um, after my podcast, say, I would have to hire multiple people because I'm going to have more than 35 per year. So then it's a potential that the voice of my content becomes inconsistent because I can't just work with one person, even if they own their own business, they would be my employee if they're going to write more than 35 times for me, because I'm a California business, even if just listen, even if they don't live in California, I'm a California. Okay. So that was going to be my next question. So it applies to you as a business as well. If you are in California and you work with somebody from Montana, it still applies. Wow. It applies to me as a business owner and it applies to freelancers where they sit. So I think some businesses can argue, look, I'm hiring somebody that doesn't live in California. So I'm going to apply the laws in Montana and not the laws in California because this hasn't come to court yet. I don't have the money to be the one to roll the dice on this and fight it out with the franchise tax board. Mm -hmm. So the general rule is that it, the employment law governs where the employee is, 
But the Franchise Tax Board is trying to apply this to all the businesses in California as well. So if you're a business in California, you need to be aware. If you're a freelancer in California, you need to be aware. If you're a freelancer that works with businesses in California, you need to be aware. So I got the chance to touch base with a lawyer before we jumped on this. Because I, like I said, this kind of hit a personal yes. note because we work with somebody who's from California. What... um. And something that was mentioned was that there might be a little bit of a solution if you work through Upwork or a similar freelancing website. Is that correct? And how exactly? Because there's a lot of people who obviously get started working on Upwork or continue to work on Upwork very successfully. What is that? And is that true? So California has not completely evaluated the business to business exception and hiring a firm like Upwork means you're hiring a business. So you as an individual, as a business are hiring Upwork as a business to provide you with an individual. The interesting thing is on Upwork's back end, whether Upwork is required to hire those individuals now as employees, but that doesn't really affect you as a business owner. I don't know how Upwork is handling this. Um, for that matter, if Upwork argues we're a software plat- software marketplace, then we don't have to hire these people as individuals. And then it passes the evaluation through to you as a business if you are hiring someone who doesn't meet the business-to-business exception, which we will talk about. Um, I am waiting to see how this shakes out for eBay, for Etsy, for Amazon, because uh, Amazon has sellers all over the place. You can just send stuff in and Amazon sends it back out. So if Amazon sells things and you're selling through Amazon and you're in California, are you now an Amazon employee? So that this these types of questions with marketplaces has not been flushed out just yet. Um, but for you as an end user, hiring someone like Upwork puts you in a better position to argue it's a business-to-business transaction. So let's talk business-to-business exception. The business-to-business exception means that you now apply the old IRS test with all 20 factors. And then there are additional factors, which is why when people are like, if you're trying to figure this out, you can't just say, oh, it's business-to-business, it's fine. You still need to potentially talk to an attorney who is familiar with this, who can go through the working relationship and go through all of the IRS prongs and then go through all of the additional prongs to this. In the business-to-business exception, one of the biggest um, factors that is where this fails is whether the contractor is providing services directly to the business or to the customers of the business. So if you run a marketing type agency and you want to hire someone to help you create content that's going to your customers, that can't be a business to business exception necessarily, unless they fall into another one of these exceptions. And there are some for graphic design and things like that. So unless you fall into another category, but if you need someone in your business to provide you services, um, then there has to be all of these prongs met, which includes negotiating their own rates, um, set their own hours and location of work, has a business license, business tax registration, business formalized business, 
which generally is where sole proprietors are nervous on this and wondering if they need to become LLCs. A lot of the time, that's their best option to show I'm an LLC. I have my business licenses. I have my business tax registration. Because at the end of the day, not to be cynical, but I am, the state of California wants to make sure you are either paying your business taxes, your quarterly taxes, or your payroll taxes. And the worker protection is what they are saying this is about. A lot of this is also about taxes and payroll taxes. You know, it always is. Money. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Follow so the money. <laughs> th- this always makes me think, or not always, this is really making me think like, okay, so let's say I'm a business who employs somebody from California. And if what you're saying is true, that this isn't going to be just California, because it's easy to say, oh, it's California, whatever, we'll just hire somebody from, you know, North Elsewhere. Dakota, whatever. I don't yeah. know why I'm picking these states in these <laughs> examples. I went Montana, North Dakota. Um, my immediate thought is if this is going to be happening everywhere, I'm just going to hire somebody from overseas. Right. So how does that work? Is this like where... At this- I think that will be part of the fallout. And, and so everybody's going to like put their hands up? I mean, California has not addressed it. Currently, you can work with overseas contractors as contractors. And if as long as you're filing the right tax documents, which is it's like a WE8, there's like seven letters after that, but there are different tax documents you file. So the way I think California will enforce this, because it's the other question I get is, how are they ever going to find me? The way Mm -hmm. I think California is going to start enforcement of this is flagging 2019 tax returns that have a lot of 1099s in them. So when your business pays contractors by 1099 or when you receive 1099s, I think they're going to flag those and compare and contrast next year. Just run it through um, a computer program to see if those 1099s go down or stay the same. But when you pay business to business, you pay a W-9 not a 1099. So that's where Mm -hmm. the business to business helps. If I'm, I'm a company, I'm a C corporation. If an LLC hires me to do work, they're paying me as a company. There's no 1099 issued. I'm not an independent contractor. You're hiring services from a business. So that is where some of the benefits of this business to business exception come in. Um, And when people are like, will California really do that? There is a recent franchise tax board goings on where they went after a gentleman in Arizona for $40,000 that he earned in California. And while that sounds like a lot, over time as a contractor, a $40,000 contract over a number of years is might not be that much. Um, and in the in the world of taxes, $40,000 is a fairly small amount to be going after. Um, When I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office with the IRS, they were going after people who owed multiple millions of dollars because otherwise it's just not worth their time and energy to prosecute. They'll send nasty grams and letters and garnish your wages, but they're not prosecuting you in court. California has a much lower threshold for getting their money. Um, So this gentleman worked as a writer, screenwriter, lives in Arizona, never filed state income taxes in California because... bro lives in in arizona so he didn't file state income taxes in california because he lives in arizona and the franchise tax board said yes but we found this money that you earned from california companies so because the income was derived in california pay the man oh and by the way um you owe seven years of penalties and fees and interest because you should have known this and done it seven years ago so 
if the franchise tax board is shaking down a dude that lives in Arizona over a fairly small amount of money that he would owe taxes on, meaning the taxes owed is going to be well less than $40,000, we might be talking under $10,000 of tax liability that they are shaking somebody down for out of state. You bet your ass they're going to start um, auditing businesses either by industry or by how many 1099s they file. And so it's not going to be that, oh, one of my contractors went to the state and said, I'm misclassified. It's going to be that the state has the power to go after this. And this AB5 law gave local prosecution prosecutorial agencies the power to prosecute this. So they can go tax collect county by county. Um, that's not ideal, but the state can initiate this on its own. It doesn't have to be somebody like, oh, well, my contractors and I are all cool. So none of us are going to say anything and it's going to be fine. However, the other way I see things go down quite a lot and working with tax, I saw this um, quite frequently, is it's it's not necessarily your employees, but it's your pissed off exes, pissed off ex-business partners, your competition, um, and potentially ex-clients who are unhappy. So there are a lot of ways that stuff like this can get reported. And in the tax world, what I saw was an ex-employee that was angry, an ex-client that thought somebody was shady, an ex-spouse that was unhappy. Um, and these are the ways these kinds of things get reported. I just did a podcast episode about this, and it was an ex-employee that dimed out Sunday Riley to the FTC on Reddit. <laughs> so... What can people do if somebody who's listening is an online business who's employing people um, who may or may not be in California because this sounds like something that might be adopted elsewhere in the States? Um, what can they do to kind of like, you know, protect themselves? And what can freelancers like what is like your top tip for freelancers who maybe live in California, maybe do not, but want to prepare for this? Like what are, what can each kind of party do to prepare for this and to kind of not get in trouble. It is time. If you have put off getting your business all the way legit, it is time to get your shit legit. All the way legit. Run your business as a business. And that means getting an EIN through the IRS. By the way, it's free. Um, and I will have links for your audience to my free resources. I have two checklists that go through all of this. I have a Get Legit Business Basics guide that kind of goes through all of the business foundational stuff you need. And then I have an independent contractor guide that I tried to keep short and is now 18 pages long that has every single one of these factors in a checklist so you can go through and evaluate your working relationships. Because a lot we'll of- put all that in the show notes. So perfect. Okay. A lot of freelancers need to evaluate their relationship to their clients, but they also need to- re- evaluate the relationship of the other freelancers that support them in their business. So freelancers have to do this as a two prong, like me to my client and then my support team to me. But run your business as a business. That means getting your business licenses. A lot of people that work from home, especially in the States, aren't aware that they need an at-home business license through either their city or county. Google, literally Google this where you live, like Los Angeles, business license, at-home business, and you will start to find what you need. They're generally like under 40 bucks to file and you file them manually and say, I have a business at home. I do consulting. Um, but these are all prongs that are going to be evaluated if you ever get audited or if your clients get audited. You have to have a written contract. Have to, have to, have to. 
the more project-based your work is, the easier it's going to be for you to argue that you are a business service provider. When the work is very broad and ongoing, um, it's more likely that you should be an employee. So get very clear in your services. Get very clear with your written contract. If you are tremendously concerned in your own business, DM me on Instagram or set up a, I do 20 minute consultation calls and I will help. But use the free, excuse me, use the free resources first to start to evaluate your business. The more legit your business is, the better position you're in to defend yourself if you get audited. And when your business is legit, you're not getting paid 1099. You're getting paid W9. Also, political rant, mini, mini political rant. Um, the United States is set up for businesses to win. The tax system in the U.S., and I took years of tax in law school because I am a giant nerd, but <laughs> the tax system is really set up for businesses to win. And all of the great tax breaks come when you are a business. So if you are freelancing and have been like, I don't know if I need an LLC, I'm not in a high liability field, the financial benefits for the tax savings might really be worth it, especially in light of what's changing. So legacy is much easier to set up financial legacy through a business or a corporation, LLC, C-Corp, than it is as an individual. And that is just the nature of the way things are set up to win. Anyone can file an LLC. Yeah, I always, I always say with the U.S., you know, the laws are written by the rich guys and the rich guys are usually business owners. So it's good for you to be in that community because you can probably get whatever little loopholes they rolled in, like wrote in for themselves. You can use them. Look, um, man, when I turned 40, my business bought me a Tesla for my birthday because I am a great CEO and my business appreciates yeah. me. So <laughs> I'm just saying there are, and there are times when my clients are like, wait, I can do that. That feels like money laundering. No, those are the tax rules. They're different for business. And there's some pretty incredible money shit you can do. Like there is some next level rich people money crap you can do if you are a business that is A, fun, and B, sets you up better. My, my company likes to have annual business meetings on Disney cruise ships. That's just where we feel most comfortable. Hey, you need that comfort for that creativity to flow. <laughs> you know, I totally get it. Absolutely. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming by the podcast. I really appreciate it. Now, can you just mention one more time, what is your website, your podcast, your Instagram, so that people who are interested in this, who want to get in touch with you can do so? Absolutely. All the things. So you can find me all over the internet at, at the Emily D. Baker. So the Emily D. Baker is where I am on all of my socials. Uh, my website's emilydbaker.com. I have a template shop. If you're like, oh, I've listened to this. I want to get my business legit. I don't have a privacy policy on my website, which by the way, the FTC says you have to. Um, that is the getlegitshop.com and the links for the independent contractor's guide and the business basics guide will all be in the show notes, but you can also find those on emilydbaker.com. So, you know, if you have a question and you're like, I just need an answer, seriously, guys, DM me on Instagram. I answer my DMs. I love chatting in the DMs. I love Instagram. I work online because I enjoy social media. I'm old though, so I don't always understand Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. I think this is super, super, super valuable for a lot of people for a lot of people listening. So thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks, guys. 